turn again to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And tonight for a little season, uh, we trust with God's help to look at verse 7 through 10. As the people of God living here below in this earth, we experience a multitude of reminders every day that we are but flesh and blood. It seems that there are continual reminders, continual experiences, uh, issues of life that confront us with that truth, that we are frail, that our bodies are frail, that our minds are frail, that we are weak. We seem to have this constant stumbling and fainting under the, the burden of our daily duties. The true believer, though, in the, in the face of all this, despite all these challenges and, and difficulties and troubles that we may face, the true believer knows something of what it is to have recourse to God in prayer, to be able to go to him, to have communion with him, to have access to him. To know what it is to just go in to the presence of God and just to sigh in his presence under that weight of care, under that burden, and just to pray for help, of seeking relief from him for the many trials and the troubles that we encounter. But often, often in our experience, day by day, it often looks to us as though God is seemingly not answering our prayers. That the relief that we ask for is slow in coming. Sometimes it seems that it's very long in coming. Sometimes we have maybe prayed many years for relief from some affliction or some trial or some trouble or some burden that we carry. And yet for many years it seems as though the Lord has not yet answered. Well, the Apostle Paul, as we meet him here in our passage, great though he was, mighty though he was as a man of God, yet in this point he was absolutely no different from any one of us. When it came to the experience of afflictions, of trial, when it came to knowing what it was to wait upon God for the answer and for the answer to not come, he was experienced in these things. In this passage that we have read, in the passage that we're taking as our text, Paul shares a poignant example of just this very thing. It's an example that he has kept to himself for many years, but he chooses to share it. And under the inspiration of God, he writes it down in the pages of Scripture. A personal insight into his own personal experience with, ex with infirmity. The lesson from Paul in these verses, really, we, we could sum it up like this. Often it is when we come to God in prayer and we plead to him for relief from our affliction. Often it is that the answer we actually obtain from God, when we pray for him to take away all of our affliction, often the answer we obtain is better than yes. Better than yes. Taking that then as our title, Better Than Yes, let's see 
what the encouragement is that the Lord has for us from these words. The first thing to notice is the affliction of God's people. In verse 7 and 8 we read this. And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice that it might depart from me. Here we have in these words Paul sharing his own personal experience. He has just described in the words before this, the passage that we read, he has described this extraordinary revelation from God as though he were caught up into heaven itself and had God directly reveal something to him and it was personal to him. You may have noticed that he says it's not lawful for a man to utter what it was that God told him and revealed to him. It was personal. It was for him and for no one else. That was the experience that he had. And it seems that the affliction that he is speaking of here is in some way or other related to that extraordinary exaltation, we could say, of Paul. So we see in the, the nature of the affliction, he describes it here like this. It's a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me. Now there is much unhelpful speculation if I may say so, around the precise nature of what this thorn in the flesh actually was. It can make for an interesting discussion, but there has been an awful lot of ink spilled on it and an awful lot of time spent on it trying to diagnose Paul's malady. But what is clearly revealed to us is not precisely what the medical diagnosis was, but from the language that is used here in this passage, I think it's quite clear that what we have is some form. Paul was suffering from some form of periodic, acute bodily pain. Something was seizing him with pain, unexpectedly, out of the blue. I was reminded of Thomas Boston and his toothaches. These toothaches seemed to come from nowhere and would seize him with immense pain and be completely debilitating. It could be something more serious than that. But it's something that's seizing him, taking him all of a sudden. The reference to the messenger of Satan, it shows that the immediate intention of these afflictions was coming from a, a, a malicious source. Satan was active. The forces of evil were active in whatever this affliction was, whatever this thorn in the flesh was. <coughs> the devil intended Paul harm. It's not unusual for an ordinary affliction, if I can put it like that, uh, to be used by the devil to cause a saint harm, to tempt someone, to plague a, a child of God. We, we have the perfect, the inspired example of that in the book of Job. In those opening chapters of Job, we see physical affliction, family affliction. Uh, we see business affliction all coming upon Job by the hand of Satan, but in the will of God. That's how it operates in practice. It happens. It's a real thing. The devil is a real foe. And we see it here uh, manifesting itself in this, uh, this affliction of Paul. Many writers have suggested that the thorn was some kind of temptation to sin, as though Paul was plagued with, with some weakness to sin that kept coming back and plaguing him time and time again. Yet it seems unlikely that if that was the case, 
if it was a temptation to sin, that God would have stopped Paul from praying for it to be removed. I don't believe it's ever wrong to pray that God would lead us not into temptation. It is much more likely that what we have here is physical or mental, but whatever way, bodily pain, a bodily malady, sporadically seizing Paul, <coughs> causing him great pain. Uh, the affliction itself was humiliating. That's the point of the passage. That's why he's telling us about it. And when we read of the buffeting, Satan, uh, a messenger of Satan, Satan buffeting Paul, uh, the idea there is of humiliating, mocking him, beating him, to make him feel dejected and small and weak. That's what the effect of this affliction was on the Apostle Paul. It's the same word, this buffeting, that's used to describe the treatment that Jesus Christ received at the hands of his persecutors. In Matthew 26, we read there that they did spit in his face and buffeted him. And others smote him with the palms of their hands. And what were they doing? They were humiliating him. And the buffeting also has within the word, within the grammar, that sense of repeated buffeting. Time after time after time. It's not just a single one-off occasion. It's not an experience that Paul has had. It's an experience that keeps coming back time after time after time. He's being buffeted, repeatedly buffeted. Frequently, he is suffering under bouts of this attack. Whatever the specific form of this affliction then, we can say with certainty that it was a physical torment that had the effect of humiliating Paul. And it's something that would have been notice noticeable in public. People could have seen it. People would most likely have been repelled by it. It was something that Paul's concern was that somehow or other his preaching ministry, his apostleship, would somehow or other have been held back because of this affliction. That's why he was so burdened by it, so concerned about it. I think it's more, uh, even more likely that it's a physical affliction when we think of the reason for the affliction. The verse reads, And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh. Lest I should be exalted above measure. See, the affliction, though it was intended by Satan to harm Paul, it was given by God. And the idea there is not just that God permitted it. The idea is it was a gift from God. <coughs> this affliction was a gift from God. This buffeting from Satan was God's gift to his child. Now the reason for this unusual gift is stated for us in plain terms. It was to hold Paul back from spiritual pride. <coughs> it was to prevent him from being tempted to the sin of spiritual pride. The, natures of, the nature of the revelations that, that Paul had well, they were such that would tempt any mortal man to pride. They were remarkable. He had an understanding of heavenly things that went far beyond the normal. He experienced a prolific level of direct revelation from God. Direct communication from heaven to man. And he was in receipt of it. Clearly, this temptation that he suffered from to spiritual pride was a real problem. A real thing. The seriousness and the intensity of this proneness to the sin of pride is seen in how Paul repeats again, lest I should be exalted above measure. He says it twice in the same sentence. 
In one sense, we could say the reason why he was so prone to this was because of how often he was being attacked, especially by the church in Corinth. How often his credentials as an apostle were being undermined and how often he was put to the test to prove himself. And so he's, the whole epistle, really, is proving himself. He's arguing for his own credentials. And so he is skirting on the very edge of the temptation of pride, we could say, by necessity and by inspiration. And so, lest he should be exalted above measure, God gives him this gift of a buffeting from Satan to keep him back from sinning. I like the buffeting mentioned earlier. The idea here of being exalted above measure is also the same idea of being repeatedly exalted above measure. In other words, the purpose of the repeated buffeting, the repeated trial and affliction, was to meet the repeated temptations to pride. As often as he would be tempted to pride, so often he would be buffeted by Satan. <coughs> this makes the nature of the affliction, I would suggest, highly unlikely to have been a temptation to sin itself. It would be unusual for one temptation to sin to be used by God in order to prevent another. It just doesn't seem appropriate. But then we have Paul's request to remove this affliction. This is his prayer. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. I hear Paul is describing an earnest prayer to the Lord for help. He is pleading. The idea in the word besought is to, to call to one side. He is begging the Lord to come alongside him. In praying, in beseeching the Lord, Paul was calling Christ to come and to stand beside him in the face of this affliction and to bid it depart, to send it away. Make it go, Lord. That's his cry. Make it stop. The number three is used. There are some, and among them John Calvin, who say that the number three used here is simply representative of repeated prayer. It just means, it doesn't mean he, he prayed three times precisely. It means he prayed over and over again. There are others uh, who say it was literally three occasions that are in view. And in their defense, every time three is used, in the New Testament, it is literally three times. But either way, the import of the, of the word being used here is that the prayer of Paul was earnest. It wasn't just a one-off prayer. He didn't just pray and then give up. He went back again and again. It wasn't half-hearted. It was a broken prayer. It was a sincere prayer. He was sincere in his desire to have this affliction dealt with. But there's no question here that Paul failed to pray in faith. Some suggest that was the case. Some say what we've got here is Paul praying, but he didn't pray believing. He didn't pray in faith, and that's why God didn't answer his prayer. Not at all. He was praying, as the Apostle John describes it, he was praying to God according to his will. According to God's will. He was praying in submission to the will of God. Often we have this text presented as an occasion of when God says no. We'll consider God's answer to it in a moment. 
But it is absolutely certain here that God did not refuse to hear Paul's prayer. Oh, God heard his prayer. And we can say emphatically that Paul was praying here in a patient submissiveness to the overruling wisdom of God's will. He was praying earnestly and he was praying sincerely, but he was praying, thy will be done. You'll see that come out more in the answer that God gives to him. Every child of God here this evening, you experience afflictions. You experience repeated afflictions, whether it's the same affliction over and over again, or whether it's a whole medley of afflictions, you experience trial. You experience grief and pain and hurt. Some of those experiences are more persistent than others. Some are more severe than others. But what we're being brought to see here is that there are afflictions that will befall you that are designed for this very purpose, to prevent you from falling into some temptation or other. Just think about the many sins that you may have been kept from because your life has not gone swimmingly. Think about the many trials, the many tests that you would have failed, that you were never put to because of the affliction that God gave you instead. The thing is, you don't know what you've been spared from by your afflictions. But what we're being shown here in the life of Paul is that is precisely how afflictions are used in the providence of God to save us from sin. To prevent us from being in the wrong place at the wrong time. There are trials that God sends our way that take away our appetite for sin. Oh, there's nothing to cure covetousness. Uh, a lusting after earthly goods or power. There's nothing that will cure it better than encountering the ugliness of wealth in, and status in those who have attained it. When we see uh, suffering under the arrogant brutality of those who are the rich and the powerful in the world, seeing how they treat their underlings, that will cure the malady of, the temptation rather of covetousness. There's nothing that will take away the temptation to gluttony, like some bodily affliction or ailment that hits us in our appetites and prevents us even from eating our food. Whatever the temptation. It seems as though there is some bodily malady, some, something that will afflict our minds, our bodies, or circumstances of life that will in itself be the very antidote, the very thorn in the flesh that will counteract that temptation. But we need to consider here the Apostle Paul, what he's telling us is that he was particularly tempted by spiritual pride. That ought to alarm us. That ought to alarm us. That ought to drive us to examine ourselves. Are we liable to spiritual pride? Is it not perhaps spiritual pride that is the most common temptation that faces the Reformed Church today? We see other denominations doing things that we would never do. We see Around this time of year, certain celebrations happening in church, celebrating the so-called church calendar, singing uninspired songs, 
using musical instruments of the world would call entertainment. There are two possible reactions to this. There are many reactions. There are two common reactions to this when we see it. One is a sadness, a brokenness, that here is brothers and sisters in Christ who have less light when it comes to purity of worship. That's a commendable response. Pray for them, friends. Pray for their reform. But I wonder, is it not the more common response? That all of a sudden, there's this rushing, gurgling geezer of spiritual pride that seems to come from nowhere and take us by surprise. And before we know it, we're smug. We think, oh dear, 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 look what they're doing. We need to be very careful that we don't fall into spiritual pride. There may well be many afflictions that we face. There may be afflictions that we are facing in the churches today across all the denominations that are preventing us from this very sin. So we see the affliction of God's people. But we also have in verse 9, the first part of that verse, the answer in God's promise. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Here we have the response of the Lord to Paul's earnest pleading. There's certainty in the answer that God gives. We read, and he said unto me. Now it's notable that the verse starts with the word and and not but. This was the answer from God to Paul. Paul prayed to God and he said unto him. He didn't, it's not that the verse is not saying to us that God prayed, or Paul prayed to God that the thorn in the flesh would be taken away but God said, no, I'm going to leave it there but my grace will be sufficient for you. No, this was the answer. Paul's prayer was heard and God granted the answer to Paul's request. God said yes to Paul but it's not in the way that Paul had thought. Paul had besought the Lord to come alongside him and here the Lord comes alongside him. But Paul had prayed to God that he would take away the affliction. Well, here he receives the answer. We're not told how the answer came. We're not told the manner in which it came. Was it a voice? Did he hear it? Was it an inner voice? Was it a verse of scripture? We're not told. It's not really important. The point is the answer is written down here in these pages of scripture. And these are God's words to us. And when we read here, he said unto me, the sense is that God answered back then, back at the time. Fourteen years ago, Paul received this answer. Fourteen years ago, and after all that time, the answer that he received then still holds good today. That's the answer that, that Paul received. That's the certainty in the answer. It's an answer that he received that would hold good forever. It was an answer that was, that was given and would continually be given. It was absolutely certain. It wasn't that Paul was being told to wait for the answer. After all that time, after all those 14 years of this affliction affecting Paul, all that time he's still living on the answer that God gave then. But the, look at the sufficiency in the answer. In the original language, the word sufficiency is put first. And that gives it the emphasis. The stress is on the sufficiency. That's the important thing to catch here. 
And the idea then becomes that what is in view is every aspect of Paul's earthly existence. God's grace is sufficient for everything. It's sufficient for the affliction. It's sufficient for the buffeting. It's also sufficient for his ministry not to be held back by it. It's sufficient for his life not to be shortened by it. For his joy not to be stented. For his usefulness not to be in any sense limited as a result of this affliction. Paul's receiving the answer to his prayer. Because sufficient for you is my grace. That's the answer. In terms of the word grace. Yes, there is that sense in which grace is unmerited favour from God. And that's latent in this word. But clearly what's meant here is that day-to-day presence of God's help through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the soul of the believer. That's the grace that God has given. It's the help of the Holy Spirit. This truly is coming to one side. This is what Paul prayed for. Paul prayed that the Lord would come to his side, come alongside me and help me, and he's given sufficient grace and the help of the Spirit day by day. This is a grace that will never run out. It's a grace that matches the need exactly so long as there is this affliction. There will be this grace. <coughs> Paul prayed for the thorn to be sent away and the answer is better than yes. Look at the strength in the answer. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. And in this answer we have an abundance. It's not simply that Paul was promised or or granted endurance. He's not just being given here grit where he can just sort of grin and bear it as it were. It's more than that. It's not not simply a removal or a muting of all the negative effects of the affliction. No, it's a positive strength to succeed as Christ's servant, not just to endure. Well, it says he is made perfect. It gives us this idea that this is the end. This is the point of it all. My grace is being made perfect. My grace is realizing its purpose. The affliction that has been sent your way is for this purpose. That, my grace, would be sufficient and my strength would be made perfect in weakness. Strength is translated in other, other places, power. So it's through the emptying out of Paul, the draining of all his own strength, the making of him to be powerless, the affliction of his body, these repeated humiliations, it's through that that God manifests his power in Paul. There's perhaps not an inappropriate parallel here with the experience of Jesus Christ in Gethsemane. There Christ prayed that his cup of affliction would be removed. There he said, he prayed saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. That was the prayer of our Saviour. We read that he returned three times to the Father to beseech him. He cometh the third time. And having prayed, we read that Jesus was strengthened. There appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. 
Oh, see the parallels. And Christ, Christ didn't simply endure the suffering. Oh, he did so much more than endure the suffering. He didn't just grin and bear it. It wasn't some stoical acceptance. No, he went willingly to the cross and he triumphed over death and hell. He was victorious. This strength then that was promised to Paul, it was not simply an enduring grace, but it was a victorious grace. Oh dear praying afflicted child of God this evening, take encouragement from this that your prayers are answered. You pray and you wait and you pray and you wait and time and again maybe you've prayed and the answer seems to be slow in coming. But here we're told that the answer always comes. And often that answer is better than yes. <coughs> the only reason. The only reason God doesn't remove your affliction from you. The only reason he doesn't send it away. Is because he will show his power through you more vividly. To better effect. More successfully. <coughs> than if he sent the trial away. You know, this is God answering your prayer when you pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is the means by which God answers your prayer, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. See then the significance of this this evening, child of God. Your affliction is necessary for the power of God to work through you. It's in your weakness that his power is seen. Maybe it all seems so difficult for you to accept. Maybe you have a trial and you simply cannot see how any good could possibly come of it. On these words, you're being taught this evening that not only, not only that much greater evils are averted by that trial, but great sins on your part are escaped because of that trial. And also there is this definite progressing, this going forward, this victory through that trial Victory in your Christian walk. <coughs> but notice as we close how Paul uses this doctrine. He draws from it assurance in God's providence. The last part of verse 9. It says, Most gladly therefore will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. In verse 10 he he says, therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Look at how he reacts to this experience. Cheerful. The Apostle Paul is cheerful in this affliction. This affliction to him is sweet to the taste. It's pleasant. He takes pleasure in it. He's saying that he's not simply going to concede the prayer to God. He's not just giving up in prayer. He's not, he's not saying that, okay, I'll stop asking and I'll endure instead. That's not what's happening here. He is saying that he is overjoyed. 
overjoyed by the fact that this infirmity will continue. And he is now saying that in his heart he associates this trial with the benevolent provision of his God for his spiritual good. It is a gift from God. That's what he's saying. He's delighting in it. His faith, you see, has been strengthened by this revelation that the very infirmities that he is suffering, the very humiliation of it all, is not only the gift from God, but it has within it such an endowment of grace that it will never run out as long as his life lasts. Oh, that's better than yes. He's not superhuman. The revelation he has received from God, the word of God, the word of grace, the gift that was given to him, was entirely apart from him. And the same revelation is written down here for us, for you, under the inspiration of God. This is as true for you as it was for Paul. But look at how confident he is. He says he will rather glory in his infirmities. Now notice it's now infirmities, not infirmity. He has switched to the plural. He's saying that he has learned from this affliction, from the worst of afflictions that he has, he has learned that the same principle holds good for all of his trials. No matter what he faces, the large ones, the small ones, the intense ones, the passing ones, the chronic ones, all of his trials are covered here. He's glorying in all of his afflictions, in all of his infirmities. This assurance that Paul has received and these words of promise are such that he sees in them now the direct remedy for his temptation to spiritual pride and to all other temptations. This is the means of sanctifying grace. His temptation has been removed in effect. <coughs> and so he will glory in the infirmity rather than glorying in himself. At verse 10, it really opens it up to all the other trials that he'll ever face. He takes pleasure in infirmities, and then he defines what he means by that in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. He also draws assurance that he is now covered. He says that the power of Christ may rest upon me Ultimately, the delight that Paul was drawing from this experience is this assurance that he received that the very existence and the continuation of his affliction pointed to the continual supply of grace and the abounding spiritual strength in the service of Christ. How does that cover him? Well, the word rest upon me. It's a familiar word. It's a word that has this idea of a tent being spread over. A tent being spread over. You know when in John 1 verse 14 when it speaks of Christ coming into the world it says that he will dwell among us. He will make his dwelling, his tabernacle. He will spread his tent among us. Christ will draw alongside and put a covering over you, child of God. That's the better than yes answer that Paul received. 
Paul's response to this affliction then this evening, we see that he turns it to his own edification. He turns it to the edification of the church. He turns it to your edification this evening. This is to build you up. This is to strengthen you. Whatever the trial, no matter how mysterious it may seem to you, what the purpose of it might be, no matter if all you can see is badness and evil and wickedness and no good coming of it, be assured, my friend, there is good. There is more good coming of it than you can ever know. This is a doctrine that turns your afflictions upside down. That which was intended for your harm becomes for your ultimate good. This is the means of, of taking your stress and your anxiety and your turmoil and making those very afflictions that you go through here in this life as a pilgrim here below, making them a means of sanctifying you, a means of protecting you, of keeping you back and saving you from falling into sin, a means of guarding you against a whole host of malignant temptations that are designed to utterly consume you. But Paul also reacts by praying differently. Now you see, very far from praying for their removal, he tells us in verse 10 that he takes pleasure in them. That's how his prayer life now looks. Oh, I thank thee, O Father, for this affliction. There's much to get your head around here this evening as a child of God. But take these thoughts. Meditate on these thoughts tonight. Take them home and pray over them. And ask your heavenly father to give this promise that was given to Paul. And he is inscribed in the pages of scripture for you. Ask your father to give it to you as his gift to you. To give you this assurance. To give you the promise to be your own. That his grace would be sufficient for you. That his strength would be made perfect in your weakness. That the answer to your prayers would be better than yes. Better than yes. Amen. Amen. I trust the Lord would add his blessing to his word. Could I call please on our brother Andrew Simple. If you don't mind coming to the front and leading us uh, in prayer. Lord God, as we come before thee at this time, we again give you thanks for all thy goodness and kindness to us. Help us to appreciate thy goodness and not take it for granted. We give you thanks for thy long suffering, for thy forgiveness and thy mercy, thy love. And help us to remember these things are possible because of what Christ has suffered for us. Help us to appreciate what he has done for us and that he has opened the way back to thyself. O Lord, we give you thanks for thy word this night. We ask, O Lord, thou bless it to us and help us to learn from it and help us to remember that thy grace is sufficient for us and help us to through, through all our trials and tribulations help us to remember these things. We ask, O oh Lord, that help us to be the people that would have us be. Help us to strive after holiness. 
and to seek to be more Christ-like. And help us to go forward in the way, leaning upon thee. O Lord, grant it. We remember the sick and the suffering, the aged and the bereaved. So many are suffering. So many have lost loved ones in these past days. We just ask, O Lord, that bless them at this time. We ask, O Lord, that thou would be with us a congregation in a time of vacancy. Again, we ask that thou would grant clarity of mind and unity among us. And we give you thanks, Lord, for thy servant who has come among us for these, these weeks ahead. We ask that thou would bless him in his studies, bless his ministry among us, bless his family. We ask that be with us and go before us and prepare us for all that lies ahead and cleanse us from sin. For Christ's sake we ask it. Amen. Amen. We'll conclude our service this evening by singing to God's praise, Psalm 77. <clears throat> Psalm 77, we'll take up the singing from verse 6. And after we've uh, sung these verses, I'll ask our uh, brother uh, Stuart Farms if he could give the benediction, please. Psalm 77 from verse 6 to verse 12. By night my song I call to mind and commune with my heart. My spirit did carefully inquire.